0: From the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order.
1: Brexit means Brexit, and we are going to make a success of it.
0: The wind is
1: back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity,
0: but it will not stay open forever.
1: Joining us on the second episode of the Digi Podcast is Laurence Boone, Chief Economist and G20 Finance Deputy at the OECD, and Duncan Weldon, Economist and Writer. Welcome both of you and thanks for your time. The subject is a big one, but I'm sure we can shed some light. We're going to talk about uh, what explains the productivity slowdown. I'd like to start with you, Laurence. Why is it an important thing to watch?
0: So, productivity is actually driving living standards, and that's you want productivity to be the highest to lift the wages of everybody. That's the first thing. The second, I think, is it's effectively gone down. Uh, Duncan will give some historical sense, but in the short term, 95, 2005 productivity growth was plus 2%, 2005-today productivity growth is close to 0.5%, and that means lower wages uh, for all those who work. And the work growth of firms, so lower employment.
1: I understand that one of the big problems with this debate is measurement of productivity. Duncan, What are the problems measuring productivity?
2: You know, if if you're learning economics from scratch and you're learning about productivity from scratch, it's quite straightforward, and you use really straightforward examples, and it's always about you know, manufacturing widgets. And nobody quite knows what a widget is, but widget is always the go-to example for manufacturing. And with say manufacturing, if you think about you know that sort of industrial process, productivity is really quite easy to measure. How many workers are working? How many hours? How many widgets are they producing? So you know, that that is quite straightforward. Once you start getting into the service sector it becomes a bit harder to measure. And once you start seeing some of the changes in the digital economy, social media, all of these kind of things that we've seen over the last 20, 25 years, it becomes really, really hard. So an example people use is photography. So you know, people are now clearly taking a lot more photographs than they were. Almost everyone has what is basically a very good digital camera in their pocket. But you know the industry as a whole, though, is employing fewer people. Now, I think we've got to be careful, though, about this measurement issue. It would be very, very reassuring to say that the recent slowdown in productivity is entirely an issue of mismeasurement. But for that mismeasurement to be the answer, it would have to be mismeasurement on an absolutely colossal scale. You're talking more than 10 percentage points of GDP of output that statisticians were just missing, and that to me
1: doesn't sound plausible. Spoon, what is the impact of technological advance, the digital
0: economy? I think. It- this is a very tough question because you can see it in many areas, but at the same time, it's not always as concrete as what I just describe. Um, but if I had to simplify it, I would say data, network and automation. You today, any firms disposes of massive amounts of data to go back to the digital camera. People knew where you are, at what time, how many pictures you've taken, how many people you've talked to, uh, what time you woke up in the morning, when you have worked, when you have slept, when you have done many things. Uh, And that's a host of information. That's the first thing. The second is network. You have social media, uh, take the Brexit campaign. You can send thousands of email, hundreds of thousands of email to people, and you know that these people will then post things on their Facebook, and then the mother of somebody who's posted something on Facebook can talk about it. So it's a fantastic way of influencing people, not only in politics, but also in economics. And all this creates new challenges for understanding how competition is working. In a standard world, you ensure that firms compete so that they create new things, they innovate, they hire workers, and they you have new products, you have a job, and these things turn around, right? It's quite fair. Today, when you've got the data, you've got the network, then you've got the power. And you can slowly but surely increase your power, which is the market size and the number of people you touching with your new product or services and that's giving a huge part to some people and shrinking the part of the other. I think it's the biggest challenge.
1: Is higher productivity growth an inherently good thing for the yeah. European economy?
2: The short answer is yes, and your productivity is it can be really hard to get across to a non-economist quite how important productivity is. You think about the kind of economic data which make headline news, you know, unemployment going up and down, inflation going up and down, prices changing, the you know, overall GDP growth of the economy. That captures the popular attention, but sitting behind everything really is productivity growth. Slightly oversimplifying, a very complicated story, the entire economic history of the world can be divided into just two parts the time before productivity growth took off, and the time afterwards. And for the first, you know, however many millions and then thousands of years that we were settled, uh, settled people after the Neolithic Revolution until the Industrial Revolution, living standards were pretty constant. You had a few good years, you had a few bad years, but you know, generally, your average worker, most of the world in 1750, was not that much better off than their ancestors had been a thousand years before whereas in the last 250 years we've had this take off of productivity growth that's what's allowed living standards to soar. And it might not sound like much but you know the UK has had a particularly acute productivity crisis over the last 10-15 years. If productivity had kept growing at the rates we were used to before the financial crisis, you know the average worker in Britain today would be about 15% better off than they are today, which is a huge amount you know, just, over, just over just over a decade really.
0: If I may, I don't, I don't think productivity has disappeared. And I think that's one thing which is very important to say. We find a lot of productivity, but in a few firms, employing few people. So what we want is to diffuse this productivity so that it benefits all. And I think the number Duncan was giving about standard of living applies actually to all countries and most of the OECD countries. So the crux of the matter today is that why is it that in some firms you have super high productivity? but in other firms you don't have it and what can we do to make sure that all firms catch up with this productivity?
1: Well you asked the question and uh, so I'll ask it back to you. (laughs) What can governments, European governments, do to to increase productivity, increase productivity growth?
0: So if I'm totally transparent we know some things but we don't know everything. Uh, What we know is productivity goes with skills So first, a good education to everybody with the capacity to adapt to changing situation that I think is the basic and the most important thing. The second is to ensure that there's no one single company that can reap the benefits of the data and network we were talking about but that all companies can actually have access to those obviously it it will create a bit of challenge with the property of data and government should have a policy to protect the consumer but at the same time ensure that there's no one firm sizing all the data uh, and beyond that, I think also it's fair to say that today we must protect those who are being shaken by productivity and technological development, because it would be an illusion to say that it's going to benefit instantly everybody. There will be firms closing and we will need to take care of the people who are losing their job because of productivity.
1: Laurence has talked us through some of the, the, the things that governments can do. Is, is globalization making it harder for governments to advance and to grow productivity or easier?
2: I think Laurence has been very honest there, that we understand what many of the drivers of productivity are, but we don't understand how important some of those drivers are over time. And if you ask any economist for a question of how we boost productivity, you can get a whole laundry list of things which will be helpful. But we don't know which is the most important. Globalisation is a, is a tricky one. Um, it's almost certainly, overall, being good for productivity growth. Exposing firms to international competition weeds out the worst firms. To start with, you know, it weeds out the worst firms in the domestic economy. And secondly, it gives, even in a small country, smaller firms the chance to scale up their production by selling globally. So, in general, productivity growth is helped by openness. I think one, I'm not going to say caveat, but one perhaps complication to that is, one could make the argument that one consequence of globalisation over the last 30 or so years has been to increase the power of capital relative to labour in most countries. Because capital can be global and it's not about immigration you know you can be exposed to Chinese competition without any Chinese people moving to Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, happens in a lot of sectors and perhaps, just perhaps, weaker labour bargaining power has helped hold wages down and perhaps and again to conjecture here if a firm is not facing wage pressure if they can get workers cheaply, maybe they have less incentive to invest in the kind of improvements in productivity which we used to see. So I think there is a double-edged thing there. Traditionally, globalization, more competition, more trade, boosts productivity, but I wonder if we're seeing an effect on labor markets which is slightly different.
0: I think, if I may add, it's the combination of globalization and technology which has actually contributed to lower the labor share. Uh, At the OECD, we've done some study where, and with all the caveats that Duncan was highlighting, but roughly you could attribute about two-thirds of the decline in labour share to technology and about one-third to globalization. They they are both intertwined. The good side of it is effectively, as Duncan was saying, competition is good, it stimulates innovation and trade also diffuses new ideas and new technology. But at the same time, when you couple it with globalization, some, you know, lower skilled people then can become more expensive and being replaced either by automated machine or by cheaper labor elsewhere.
1: There was some discussion in the, in the session upstairs about the impact of financial markets on productivity and short termism. And, Shareholder structures. How how do you see that developing? Is there and is there a way for governments to manage that process?
2: There's there's an argument that's been made increasingly, including by I mean recently Andy Haldane, and the chief economist at the Bank of England, that if we look at you know the behaviour of firms and what they do with their profits, compare what firms do today to what they did in the late seventies. In the late seventies, much of those profits were reinvested back in the business, in traditional capital expenditure, new plant, new equipment, training, etc. Whereas now increasingly that money is, a high portion of that money is paid back to shareholders, either the dividends or buybacks. So maybe we've got this short-termism. Maybe there is now, firms are more incentivized to look after their shareholders in the short-term rather than investing for the long-term. I mean, it's certainly plausible. We have seen weaker business investment. I think we have to be careful, though, because we're seeing similar trends, I mean, not just in what you might think of as traditional shareholder-dominated capitalist Anglo-American societies, you're seeing similar trends in countries with a you know more stakeholder model of corporate governance. So whereas I think there probably is something in this, I don't think you can say that's the, you know, with all of these things, I don't think we can pinpoint one cause and say that's what's caused productivity to slow.
1: Would you agree with that?
0: I, to a large extent, I agree with what Duncan was saying. What I would add is a lot of investment today is in intangible assets. Uh, and what makes the difference between a very a highly productive firm and a low productive firm is investment in those assets. So what do we mean by intangible assets? It's data. It's algorithm. But it's also organizational skills, managerial skills. Um, and all this, I mean, to get back to what we were saying earlier, we don't really know how to measure it to be frank, we don't know how to measure intangible capital, and we don't know, so you know, when when you were in a traditional firm, you could borrow money and you put down the building as a collateral, to the intangible assets, you don't use that as collateral. So there are a host of new things that we don't really tend to assess or evaluate effectively.
1: What's the impact of the, of the winner-takes-all companies issue?
2: Well, I mean, this is an argument, isn't it, that we're saying... Uh, a new development in how competition works that we're seeing the classic example would be Amazon or Facebook you all know, these big digital firms who get an early first mover advantage um, can then colonize pretty much the whole market the barriers to entry become very high you know it's very hard to launch competitor to Facebook tomorrow given you know, the, the data Facebook has built up and controlled over the past um, 15 or so years so you see this sort of diffusion of Returns. You see these few really highly productive firms, and then nobody else can catch up to them. Um, so, the basic problem. So, I mean, it starts leading you into interesting things about how we should think about competition policy. Now, I think competition policy, I mean, one way I always think about it is a lot, not all, but a lot of competition policy over the last sort of 20, 30 years has had the guiding principle let's look at the impact on the consumer. So, you know, we look at say, the utilities sector and we say, are, are, are consumers getting a fair price for their energy? Or are consumers being ripped off by retailers? Yeah. And so if they're not, then we sort of say, well, things are okay. When you're looking at Facebook, which is giving away its product for free, I mean, it's hard to say there is a consumer issue there. I mean, for consumers, Facebook is excellent, but maybe there is another economic problem with their business model, which we really need to think about competition policy to that extent as well.
1: Would you, would you agree with that, Baron Spoon? Is there anything that, comp- that, that governments can do to break up a Facebook or break up an Amazon and boost productivity in that in that way.
0: Well, actually, I totally agree with the description and I think this creates two challenges, one at the national level and also one at the international level. At the national level, as Duncan was saying, we have a the the utilization of the market in the form of data which is unique you're not ripping off the consumer but you're creating a rent for the firms and rents are not good because those people who have a rent they can increase prices indefinitely and we are not seeing it today but in the long term the consumer will pay for that and for that we are seeing some governments actually setting up commission and working group to understand how that works and how they can address it from a fair competition point of view. That's the first thing. The second is those companies, they don't act locally, right? It's not one restaurant holding the restaurant marketplace of your village. They are in Europe, they are in the US, uh, others are in China. So you need Europe and the US, for example, to be able to cooperate on how. To ensure that those firms do not gain unfair competitive advantage, um, And it's going to be quite challenging at the current juncture.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'd like to finish off with a, with a, a question on um, demographics, where Europe is getting older. Um, how does that play into the productivity question? Uh, it, it, it's a difficult one. I mean, it's just
2: I mean, if we just think to start with, you know, what makes up economic growth. There's two ways you can boost economic growth. You can have more workers, or you can have workers being more productive. So this is partially why the productivity challenge is really you know an acute issue for Europe when you've got an aging workforce and slower growth in the working age population. If you want to maintain um, you know decent headline growth and be able to fund the transfers you're going to need to the older dependent you know retired, that the workforce then you need productivity growth. In terms of the direct linkage between the two, there is a theory, uh, popularized recently by Charles Goodhart, who's at this conference, he's argued that demographics have had an impact on the labour market, that for 30 or 40 years you had quite fast growth in the working age population, the dependency ratio was falling, each cohort of workers was becoming bigger, and he argues this was one of the things that undermined labour bargaining power. He also argues, on an optimistic note, that as the population ages as the supply of the working age population becomes smaller with each cohort that will restore a bit of bargaining power to workers the fun thing about demographics is we can all have an opinion but it takes 20 to 30 years to be proved right or wrong so it's a it's a great topic for economists to talk about <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: on that note Boone, thank you very much for your time
0: thank you thank you thank you for listening to the CER podcast If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.